Well, so much for moving to every other week episodes. Things in the age of COVID just move too fast and nerdy as it may sound, when I do an interview I'm excited about, I just can't wait to share it with you. On today's show, we talk about vaccines, which as you know, are all over the news and a great source of hope with new and fast paced developments happening pretty much every day. On this episode, I talk with three Ohio State law professors who are experts in various aspects of vaccine development and distribution. We also talk a bit about the politics of the moment. For example, there's been a lot of discussion about making sure that vaccines are safe, and that's obvious, but we also need to build trust among skeptical Americans concerned about the speed and often misinformed about the science while ensuring that distribution is equitable. We get into these kinds of questions at length. This is Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. As always, before turning to my conversation with our guests, I'd like to remind you to share your ideas for show themes or interviews by emailing us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our website at prognosisohio.com. While you're there, please consider becoming a Prognosis Ohio patron for just $3 a month, which, if you commit to six months or more, gets you a spiffy Prognosis Ohio t-shirt as a token of our thanks. We hope you can appreciate our decision to use Patreon instead of jamming lots of boring commercials into episodes. To support the show, please visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month and become a patron. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. I'm thrilled to have three fantastic guests on today's show. Patricia Zettler is an associate professor of law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law, a faculty member of the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center housed at the College of Law, and a member of The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. Professor Zettler's teaching areas include torts, legislation and regulation, health law, and food and drug law. Eftemios Parasides is an expert on health law and bioethics who holds a joint appointment with the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law and the College of Public Health, and is a faculty affiliate with the College of Medicine's Center for Bioethics. His work has appeared in top journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, American Journal of Public Health, and Boston University Law Review, among others. He's a co-author of a leading casebook on the ethics and regulation of research with human subjects. And last, but far from least, Micah Berman makes his second appearance on Prognosis Ohio. Micah is an associate professor of public health and law at the Ohio State University's College of Public Health and the Moritz College of Law. His research explores the intersections of public health research and legal doctrine, and he's the co-author of The New Public Health Law, a transdisciplinary approach to practice and advocacy, among a lot of other publications. We'll be linking to our guests' larger profiles in the show notes so you can read more about their accomplishments and their areas of expertise. Well, hey, folks, thanks so much for joining me on the show. I'm really glad to be able to talk about something that's obviously on everybody's mind right now, which is vaccines, and really happy to have three distinguished lawyers such as yourself, uh, but also public health experts uh, from Ohio State to talk with um, about this issue. And we're talking on a day uh, when we've learned that Pfizer's going to seek regulatory review for its vaccine uh, within days is what they're saying now. So let's start with just a big picture question. Vaccines are really complicated things. Uh, Most people, I'll just say myself included, don't claim to understand the the real science behind how they work, at least in the in the details. But you know, we're hoping, really hoping, (laughs) to get a vaccine soon. So, can you talk a little bit about you know from your research, from your writing, frame for listeners the kind of current moment we're in? And I guess I'll turn to Patty first. Yeah. So that's a really great question in terms of 
the regulatory process that we can expect for a COVID-19 vaccine candidate. And given, as you noted, that Pfizer is saying it's going to submit its vaccine candidate to FDA for review any day now, you know, what the process that we're looking at is called an emergency use authorization process. And FDA has the authority to issue these emergency use authorizations for products during public health emergencies. So this isn't a standard FDA approval process. It's a different process. The statutory standard, so the standard in federal law for FDA to issue an emergency use authorization is a lower one. Uh, The the law requires less evidence to support a product um, issued an emergency use authorization than a regular approval. But FDA has signaled in a number of ways that its expectations for any COVID-19 vaccine candidate are higher than it would expect for something like a diagnostic test or a drug intended for COVID-19 patients. I'm guessing some people would hear what you just said and say, you know, lower standard or lower threshold. And that's been one of the big concern points, right, is like... What does that mean? Are we talking about things being less safe? And, you know, Dr. Fauci has been out there making sure that that is not the narrative saying, you know, Operation Warp Speed, Fast Track, uh, Emergency Authorization. None of this is supposed to erode the science itself. But I wonder if uh, Athemi or uh, Micah, you want to jump in on that one? I think that's right, Dan. Um, The public health officials have been trying to give confidence to the public that any vaccine that's authorized for use via this emergency procedure is both safe and effective. Part of the challenge has been that for at least eight months now, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen the White House um, and other legislatures really try to undermine public confidence in public health officials. Uh, We've seen the White House especially look to undermine science and scientists And a lot of that has translated into people fearing that the FDA is going to be um, subjected to this political pressure and will buckle to it and therefore rush a vaccine to market that may not otherwise be safe or effective. Now, you you three are all lawyers. So, um, you know, I I guess I'll ask Micah this question from the legal perspective. I mean, is is there what are the concerns here about things when we talk about speed, when we talk about you know, whether it's warp speed or we talk about emergencies, um, are there legal concerns there? Do the people have good reason to be concerned? Or do you think that the people who kind of hold the science are just so well aware of the importance of this being legitimate that that's not really something to worry about? I don't think it's so much a legal concern as, as it is really a practical concern. The process here for developing a vaccine is really moving much, much faster than we have ever seen a process like this work before. And as much as I think the FDA is going to be careful at at looking at the science that they have, there is only so much that they can look at uh, when you're talking about a a process that has been crunched into a a much shorter timeline. So you're talking about study populations and, and numbers of cases um, that aren't really uh, enough to give you conclusive evidence about uh, what the impact is going to be if you roll this out on a much broader population level in terms of uh, either safety or effectiveness, but especially on the uh, the safety side is where you would probably have the, the largest concern. So I think it's really important to go back to what Patty said before, that you know, emergency youth authorization just isn't the same thing 
as full approval and, and people need to be aware of that. That's not to say that, you know, there, there might not be um, some important populations that we want to uh, rush uh, these vaccines out to as, as quickly as possible. Uh, but I think uh, we do have to be bringing a level of uh, caution to it and a recognition that this is not the same uh, process and the same review that the FDA will ultimately go through for final approval. Yeah, and a piece that you sent me that the three of you authored, I was interested to learn some of the actual uh, time period. So you talk about how the average period for a vaccine is about a decade, about 10 years. And I, I believe you said that the the quickest vaccine production was about four years for the mumps vaccine. So do you think people will be aware of the kinds of things that you're talking about? You know, the p- public, you know, again, myself included, I always marvel at the fact that you know, with the FDA and with government oversight, I mean, we trust in it so much on, in so many ways. Uh, when, when I go to the doctor and get a vaccine, I don't look at the, you know, the thing they're putting inside me very carefully. And even if, even if I did, I'd be um, hoping that the labeling was good on it anyway, even if I had that ability. So there's so much trust built into this whole system and, and so much trust as you've kind of all alluded to over the last uh, nine months or so, it, it's been eroded a bit by the, or, or, or a lot by the Trump administration, even to the point where President-elect Biden said, I don't know if I'd get a vaccine if it was something that the Trump administration alone told me about. So how do we rebuild this trust piece back in over the next couple of months, assuming that Pfizer and other vaccines move forward? Maybe we can turn back to Patty on this. Sure. Um, I guess I want to echo, start by echoing something Micah said, which is that I think we need to to hold sort of two ideas in our mind. One, that the emergency use authorization process is not the same as a normal approval, but there might be good reasons here um, to allow emergency use authorizations for a COVID-19 vaccine candidate for specific populations. And, you know, I think over the last several months, FDA has taken some important steps to try to counter some of the public trust problems we've seen emerge during the COVID-19 vaccine and really even before the COVID-19 vaccine. So um, FDA has issued a couple of guidance documents talking about what people have called an EUA plus standard for COVID-19 vaccine candidates. So talking about the agency's expectations that the evidence supporting a COVID-19 vaccine candidate uh, for an EUA would be more robust than we've seen for drugs. Um, The agency had an advisory committee meeting in late October to talk generally about COVID-19 vaccine candidate development, and that gives the agency an opportunity to get outside expert advice, but it's also required by federal law to be open to the public and transparent. So it's an important tool for transparency. Um, Just yesterday, the commissioner the FDA commissioner announced some sort of new commitments to transparency with respect to products issued in EUA. And the agency has held some dates in December to take specific vaccine candidates to advisory, back to uh, vaccine advisory committees before making EUA decisions. So I think those are all important steps. And I think as much transparency as the law permits is one important step that FDA can take now and hopefully, uh, you know, continue to improve upon when uh, President-elect Biden takes office. 
But I'd be curious to hear uh, what Athene and Micah think about sort of restoring public trust as well. Yeah, me too. Let's turn to Athene. Thanks, Dan. I, I agree with everything that, that Patty said. Um, I'll add a few other, what I would call concrete steps that FDA and public health officials can take. The first is to be transparent, um, not just about the science of what they know, but also about the science that they don't know. So the actual preliminary data that's been shared from the Pfizer vaccine um, and the Moderna vaccine, you know, they keep throwing this number out of 95% effective, but I think they need to do a better job of explaining exactly what that means. Um, essentially, what they've been, how they've calculated that number is by um, vaccinating some individuals, giving others a placebo, and then tracking them as they move about their lives to see exactly who contracts COVID and whether or not they contract a serious or um, mild case of the disease. Now, we don't know more details, right? Are the people on the placebo side of the trial and on the vaccine side of the trial, are they living um, similar lives? Are they having similar types of exposures? We need to know more information about exactly what the lifestyle and exposure risk was for these groups um, as part of the trial. So the bigger picture is that when it comes to actually authorizing a vaccine for, uh, to market, the FDA has to be very clear about what exactly it knows and what exactly it does not know. And when it comes to things that it does not know, for example, to what extent might the vaccine um, prohibit or limit transmission of asymptomatic cases, to what extent it may reduce hospitalizations, reduce COVID-related deaths. Um, for all these unknowns, the FDA, I think, needs to come up with a plan on how it's going to get the information. And this would require post-market studies. So after the authorization is issued, the FDA needs to explain to the public, this is what we're going to continue to do during the vaccine rollout in order to fill the gaps in our knowledge base. And I think by doing that, um, the FDA is going to you know, acknowledge that it is limited in its knowledge of what the vaccine is um, capable of doing, both in terms of safety and effectiveness, and also showing that it's continuing to monitor, monitor the vaccine um, after the rollout. You know, so many people are just busting at the seams, hoping that a vaccine is going to come along. I, I read some of the media coverage around this. There's so much excitement that I just worry that people aren't thinking in any kind of nuanced way because they're just seeing the end goal here. And I would think that that would be something that FDA would want to actively temper down a bit. But Micah, what do you want to add to that? I absolutely agree with that concern. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine I can send to you from a couple of weeks ago that I thought made the really great point that when people are, are asking, when is there going to be a vaccine? Uh, they're really asking three different things. So one question is, when will we actually have a vaccine that is safe and effective? Second thing is, when will someone like me be able to get that vaccine? And then the third question is, when will, be, when will we be able to return to our pre-pandemic lifestyle? And those are, are three very different questions that might have three very different answers. And I really worry that people are thinking that we're going to have a vaccine uh, and we're going to be able to be done with all of these, you know, public health responses, mask wearing and social distancing, et cetera. And, and I really don't think that's going to be the case for quite a while. And I think the FDA and, and state and local officials as well uh, need to get in front of that and start uh, communicating that message now. 
And of course, some of you know the people around us here in Ohio are already behaving like they're vaccinated and that everything is fine. So in a way, some people I see almost returning to that kind of uh, state of things uh, preemptively before there's any reason to, but that's maybe a different question than the one we're looking at here. I want to ask a little bit of a related question to this here, which is about distribution, um, because of course, you know, we can... We hope that there will be different vaccine options and um, that they'll be very successful and all of that. But getting it out to people is a very different question. And that also raises not just logistical questions. And we've seen in the news, for example, a lot of discussion about different refrigeration that's going to be needed and logistical lines and things like that, but also the ethics of it, also the question of uh, just distribution. So I wonder um, if anybody wants to weigh in on, on that question and what you see going on in terms of how that preparation is taking place, not just how we're going to get these around, but you know how we're going to ethically um, you know distribute the vaccines we do have as we have them available. I, th- I think we're going to be in a pretty confusing landscape for a while, in part because there are all of these different vaccine candidates that you know might be administered different ways and need storage in different ways. And, you know, the logistics of working out what vaccine, there might be more than one that gets approved and which vaccine gets out to whom is going to be quite complicated. But I I think the equity issue that you raise is a really, really important one. Um, We've seen, you know, huge disparities in terms of the impact of COVID. Uh, and I think it's important that that be taken into consideration as we think about vaccine distribution as well. And I, and I just saw a report from um, the Kaiser Family Foundation looking at you know the initial plans that states are are starting to put together. And I think only half of them mentioned anything about equity and about racial disparities in particular in their planning. So I think that's I think that's troubling. So I think we've got uh, a long way to go. Uh, and I think there there certainly needs to be some public input and public feedback on the plans that the states are now developing. If Timmy or Patty, do you want to weigh in as well? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Um, the National Academy of Medicine put out uh, an ethical framework to help guide the CDC and states in setting up kind of a tiered approach to, to vaccine rollout, starting first with healthcare providers and then moving on to um, those who are most vulnerable, whether it's individuals over 65 with comorbidities individuals in prisons, et cetera. So I think the the National Academy's ethical framework is going to serve as a guide for a lot of what we see in terms of state rollout plans. Um, that said, like, like Micah mentioned, a really important point is even within the tiers, trying to figure out who's going to get first access. In other words, do we prioritize prisoners or do we prioritize individuals in nursing homes? And if so, to what extent or why, I should say, why are we prioritizing one group over the other? Is it because of the COVID risk? Is it because of the risk spreading to others? Um, I think there needs to be, uh, like Micah mentioned, some public transparency and input into setting these um, these frameworks. I, I will add that I agree with everything Efimi and Micah have said, and the National Academies framework, I think, is a great expert starting point to think about the equity and ethical issues associated with allocation. Regardless of whether we're talking about those issues or the logistical issues, I personally hope we see tons of money thrown at the problem (laughs) of allocating vaccines. I've also seen reports that, you know, as states are preparing their distribution plans that, you know, they're underfunded. And, you know, some of these problems are problems we can solve with resources 
like some of the, you know, more logistical questions. Yeah, and I'll be sure in the show notes to link to the the, the standards you're talking about, as well as the Ohio plan, which um, you know it's been reported in the news as well. And uh, there there are huge questions here, but obviously there are different vulnerabilities. Um, it, I mean, first of all, our knowledge of COVID continues to develop and change um, almost in real time, just as vaccines are being produced. So, like putting these pieces together and understanding that is, is actually quite challenging. But I wonder when we're going to hit a point at which um, that becomes the new politics uh, about fairness instead of kind of the way we've seen the politics fan out. I've talked on this show a few times about, I don't know, maybe you know differently and you can tell me, but to my knowledge, there's not another moment in history where we've had a kind of active resistance movement to a vaccine that didn't even exist yet, um, kind of the linking up of the uh, the anti-vaxxer movement. And I wanted to ask about that. Uh, you know, How do you all see that developing? Of course, the more trust we have in FDA, the more integrity the process has, the more transparency we get out of FDA and the companies, the better. But do you think that that's strong desire to see an end to this thing is going to overwhelm any kind of vaccine resistance? And how do we negotiate that? It's a great question, Dan. One thing I, I think it might be helpful to, to clarify at the outlet or at the outset is when we talk about anti-vaccine movement, um, I think in the in the media, the, there are a lot of individuals who are grouped together in this so-called anti-vaccine movement, perhaps in inappropriate ways. So, so mm-hmm. certainly some people are truly anti-vaccine. They don't want to be vaccinated in any condition, for any reason. Um, that's a small percent of the population. The much bigger percent are those who are vaccine hesitant, which means that they have concerns with the disclosed safety or effectiveness of, of vaccines. Um, and that's a much larger group. And, and what we're seeing, I think, with COVID is a large expansion of the vaccine hesitant group, not necessarily of the anti-vaccine group. In other words, people are realizing that the approval process for vaccines, whether it's COVID or otherwise, may not capture adequately all the safety and efficacy concerns, and that there needs to basically be more detailed information brought to the public in order to build confidence. So to the extent that um, COVID vaccine development is bringing into the public limelight the need or a call for more data, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, the bad thing would be if there would be a truly shift to, to anti-vaccine. So people who are refusing, um, you know, standard childhood vaccines because now they don't believe any vaccine is legitimate um, due to the pressure they've seen on the FDA over the past nine months. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that too. I, I've read some fantastic scholarship, mostly kind of interview-based scholarship that really listens to what vaccine-hesitant folks say, and I think there's a lot to be learned there. I do have a question, especially since I have three, you know, dynamite lawyers on the line here. I can ask you, I, what's going to happen in workplaces in terms of requirements for vaccines? Um, I mean, I know this is a terrain that gets played out in a number of ways. I've talked to people, for example, at local healthcare systems who uh, have, you know, religious exemptions for various things at times. And this is something we talk about in Ohio. It's different in every state. But do you think that there's going to be a push for a much more stringent locking down of this and saying, look, everybody needs to get their vaccine? Is it going to be a, a rule? Is it going to be a strong encouragement? How do you see that developing? It, it gets back to where we started, where you know we're starting to talk about an emergency authorization, which is not a full approval. So I think that makes the situation a little bit 
uh, different. Uh, you mean people can leverage that a little bit to push back and say, you know, not yet, I'm going to wait this out? Uh, I mean, I think it is appropriate to hold off on mandates uh, until there there is uh, a full approval um, in that, you know, at this uh, initial stage, uh, having a mandate uh, probably is not appropriate. And, and with mandates in general, um, you, you certainly do have to be cautious about you know, them leading to um, backlash and increasing resistance. So I think mandates are, uh, generally speaking, in, in all things public health, uh, the, the tool of last resort, not the first one that you want to go to. I mean, I think we're probably talking about you know, way, way, way down the line. We will certainly have a safe and effective COVID vaccine that, that will probably be, or who knows how exactly it'll work, but you know, may well be incorporated into the regular vaccines that um, that kids get in childhood. But you know, we're not close to that uh, point yet. So I think we do need to be thinking about getting this vaccine first to you know, priority populations, as you know, Femi and, and Patty mentioned, um, and working with uh, with those communities and, and providing uh, access and support. Um, and, and not going to to mandates as the the first tool in the toolbox. If the me and Patty, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I agree. Also with with Micah and Patty. I, first of all, I think there aren't going to be enough vaccines um, in the in the short term. Maybe even six yeah. to twelve months out. So um, maybe the government isn't even interested in pushing a mandate. They're really willing to push um, to see who's willing to get vaccinated and see how that goes. Now, as as time goes on, maybe in six months or in twelve months or maybe even in two years. If we keep seeing a resurgence of COVID um, and a vaccine that is safe and effective, perhaps has been actually approved by the FDA, that's probably the better time to start thinking about mandates. Yeah, it's something I've heard people discuss as well is do we, you know, do we know about the future of COVID? Um, Do we know about whether, you know, uh, it's going to be a moving target, you know, like some diseases are or whether this is it. And uh, do we have any sort of sign about whether the vaccine that's being developed now will uh, hold, uh, will be effective down the line? Um, I, I can take a first stab, but I would defer to Ephthemi and Micah. I mean, I think just in the last day or two, there's been some research suggesting that COVID infection and COVID vaccines may provide lasting immunity. Uh, but I think one concern that has been raised about the possibility of EUAs for COVID-19 vaccine candidates is that widespread access to, let's say, the first vaccine candidate might delay or prevent research continuing with both that specific vaccine candidate, but also other potentially better vaccine candidates. So I think paying attention to how FDA structures any EUA that it issues to preserve the ability to continue to conduct important research into the safety and effectiveness of all COVID-19 vaccine candidates that are promising will be something to pay attention to as we anticipate FDA receiving a request for an EUA very soon. I think Patty makes a great point that I just wanted to underscore, which is where everyone's excited about the first vaccine or the second vaccine to market, but the fourth or seventh vaccine to market may be the best. And there's no study going on right now that's actually evaluating one vaccine versus the other. So that's only something that can happen once the vaccines are on the market. Data is being collected on how individuals are faring with each vaccine, how long immunity lasts, what the side effects might be, et cetera. 
So this is certainly a long-term project. Um, we've never had a disease for which there have been so many vaccine candidates competing with each other. So we really are in uncharted territory. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about that, actually. And this is going to be a kind of a layman's question. I'm a political scientist who teaches health policy, right? So I'm not a, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a, a, a vaccine researcher or anything even close. So we have all these different kinds of vaccines. Um, there's a little bit of a horse race going on. There are these charts that show them all in different stages. Pfizer seems to be a kind of quote unquote ahead in some ways. But, you know, but in making sense of this is actually quite challenging is this typical of vaccine production that you ha- you said that there's many more than we're used to in these kinds of moments? You know, is it possible and is it even the case today that different countries are going to get different vaccines? And how do we assess, you know, why we need um, all these different, is it just to see which one shakes out at the end as the best or do we operate on parallel tracks moving forward um, based on different populations or different needs or anything else? You know, personally, I think it really depends. I mean, I think Ephthemi's point is that we're kind of in this unprecedented time of COVID-19 vaccine development. As I think Micah mentioned, really, this is the fastest uh, vaccine candidate development we've seen. Um, So we're just we're in this kind of unprecedented time with all these different companies pursuing um, different, you know, their own vaccine candidates. you know, with respect to the, the sort of uh, wonky FDA answer with respect to sort of how do we know which one is best is, well, you know, we need to actually directly compare them in clinical trials. Um, mm-hmm. And it may be that it turns out that, you know, some vaccine candidates are better for certain populations that other vaccine candidates are better for other populations. But, you know, we really we don't know that right now. And I, I'm not sure there's a good way to predict that right now. Another point I'll, I'll raise, Dan, is that um, for the past 40 or 50 years, uh, vaccine production has been either monopolized or um, semi-monopolized. In other words, there have been you know, one or two, maybe three vaccine manufacturers for each type of vaccine that's available in the market. So there truly is no playbook for how to deal with a situation where there are seven or 10 or 20 vaccine candidates and trying to parse out, like Patty had mentioned, which one is best for all groups, certain groups, longest in terms of immunity, et cetera. So again, this is where the FDA has to really step up and say, not only are we dealing with an unprecedented pandemic, but we're also dealing with an unprecedented vaccine market. And we need to be especially clear and you know insightful about how we're going to evaluate the vaccines that we authorize to come to market. And there's also kind of an international dynamic here. I, I, I know, I mean, I hear that there is Russia claims to have some vaccines in production, but I hear some Americans saying, oh, we don't believe it. And, you know, I've taken students for um, a couple of years to Cuba. And when we meet with the Cuban folks, they always say, yeah, we have all these fantastic things. We'd love to share them with the Americans, but they don't want to work with us. You know, so I wonder if there's a similar dynamic in terms of different countries working on different tracks and it getting wrapped up a little bit in that international dynamic. There, there is, I think, unprecedented international cooperation on vaccine development going on now. The unfortunate piece is that the United States has not been a part of it. Um, so that, that certainly complicates things. And it'll be interesting to see when the Biden administration takes over, uh, whether our efforts here get better integrated back into what the rest of the world uh, is doing. I just wanted to mention, too, I, I maybe heard... Uh, under your your last question, 
as the political science question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think, um, you know, we also want to be cautious about you know, financial motives and financial pressures. And, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, companies are pressuring that, you know, our vaccine should be the one that's mandated over this one, you know, for issues that are, are unrelated to the, the safety and efficacy of those vaccines. So I think those are, you know, given this unprecedented situation where we're in, where we have all these different companies competing um, to, to develop a vaccine, we want to be worried that we have healthy competition um, between them, you know, in, in all meanings of the word healthy uh, going right. forward. And not quid pro quo, right? I mean, I know in your writing, you talked talked a little bit about the uh, the chief advisor for Operation Warp Speed, um, who was, you know, um, a former board member for Moderna, but uh, apparently didn't dump his stocks like he was supposed to before taking that role. And these things just erode trust. And uh, as we've discussed, we need trust in this process more than perhaps ever. And I, I guess I'll just, you know, we're heading toward the end here open it up for each of you to add anything that maybe we didn't hit on something that maybe I don't even know to ask you about because of, you know, it's your area of expertise, but anything you'd like to our listeners to know that you think is really important um, at this time. Sure. Thanks, Dan. This has been a, a pleasure speaking with you and Patty and Micah about these important issues. The one point I'll add is it might be helpful for states if they want to build confidence in vaccinations in particular for COVID vaccines to offer healthcare to individuals who may suffer adverse events from, from the immunizations. In other words, if a person agrees to be vaccinated and they happen to be one of the um, individuals who does suffer an adverse event, it's not something that's going to put them out of pocket in terms of medical costs and access to medical care. So by expanding access to healthcare, um, it might be another policy tool that states can use to help build confidence. And that's kind of the, the the classic idea of insurance, right? Which is an unforeseen thing, but just giving people that peace of mind. Exactly. It's basically expanding the social safety net. Yeah, great. Patty, what do you want to add? Um, you know, I'm not, I don't think this is saying something new, but I do think it's really, I just want to underscore that understanding the regulatory process that a vaccine candidate is likely to go through the emergency use authorization process, I think is important at the same time that we recognize that's not the same as a standard approval. I think there are other signals we can look to, to understand how trusting we should be in the process. And as I mentioned, I think, especially in the last couple of months, there have been some, you know, promising efforts at FDA to be more transparent and, make more transparent, as Ephthemi said, the things we know and the things we don't know about any given COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Yeah, and I would guess that this is something the Biden transition effort is talking about a lot, which is restoring trust, making sure that they, you know, if, that they rebuild some of what we've talked about over the last bunch of months to depoliticize this process a bit. That would seem to be really important if we want to be successful with this. Um, Micah, how about you? You want to get the last word on uh, what, what our listeners should know that maybe they don't? Sure. And, and thanks for having us to talk about these issues. I, I just think a constant theme through this pandemic has been that uh, the government has not done things that we count on government to do, and or at least has not done them well uh, at all. And, and that I think will have really troubling long-term consequences in, in terms of trust and, and as a result um, for public health. So you know, I think we need to start repairing that as fast as possible. And the vaccine is a good place to start doing that. I said that you know, mandates shouldn't be 
the, the first resort, they should probably be the last resort. Uh, but what we need to start thinking about is the kind of nitty gritty work of government. How are we going to get uh, a vaccine uh, up and running and produced in millions and millions of batches? How are we going to get it out to people uh, as quickly as we can? How are we going to get the workforce to deliver it? Uh, so there, there are so many kind of logistical, practical questions, the kind of things that we would normally be counting on our government to do. Uh, they are really, really challenging questions uh, in the current context. Um, but we need to be focused on those questions and and working on them as quickly as we can. People want the things that are mandated. Sometimes it's more about communicating with them about it. And I think we can all agree that people want this pandemic over. They want to get back to their lives in some semblance of what it was before. So I'm guessing that the persuasive piece is actually far more powerful than a mandate would be anyway. And I, I, I think I'm hearing that in what you're saying. I absolutely. So I, I think the word to think about uh, that Athemi mentioned before is access. How do we provide uh, easy access and make that the focus of everything that we're working on right now? Great. Well, I've had you on the show before, Micah. I always enjoy talking with you and um, you know, uh, I appreciate you joining us again. And now I have two new friends, Athemi and Patty. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk about vaccines with us. I'm glad that we can do our part to keep the conversation going and, and clear up a few things about this pretty confusing, but hopefully optimistic process we're in the middle of here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks very much. My many thanks to our guests for taking the time to help us understand the policy and legal terrain that COVID-19 vaccines are navigating. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio, follow us on Twitter at at Prognosis Ohio, friend us on Facebook, and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. As I mentioned, we'd really love some ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show and would appreciate your recommending guests and possibly even connecting us to them. Either way, we appreciate you telling others about the show and please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks and be well.